Redemption, if you're visiting us for the first time, is um, uh, made up of many communities, many churches in the valley. Uh, this is, again, Peoria. Many of you, of course, know that. And, uh, and I would like to welcome you. My name is Jim Ellis. I'm one of the two elders. Sean is on vacation. I think he's driving back from uh, Washington right now, state of Washington, with his family. And, uh, and he'll be back, uh, I believe, tonight or tomorrow. So, again, welcome. Um, one of the things we say at Redemption is this context is king in the scripture. And I want to set the stage for today's passage. The book of Mark was written probably, not probably, the book of Mark was written by the young man who fled in the garden when Jesus was taken prisoner. His, his mother and he were good friends with the apostle Peter. And the disciples met at Mark's home often before Jesus was crucified and after. And more than likely, Peter supplied a great deal of information to Mark regarding the facts in his book. They, the disciples, are in Capernaum now in the scripture. They're in a house, which is more than likely Peter's home, because they met there on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, while they're there, Jesus, they've argued as they've come to, uh, to Capernaum about who's the greatest. And Jesus tells them, whoever wants to be first must be very last, and the servant of all. And then Jesus tells them, whoever's not against us is for us. And now Jesus and Mark move into uh, a scripture that is um, tough, it's dark. And I have to tell you, when I first read this a few weeks ago, when I knew it was on the schedule, I was thinking, oh great, I get to talk about sin, amputations, hell, and trials. And I'm like, great morning. Um, but as I read Jesus' words, um, I was impressed with the fact that they're not kind, they're not gentle, uh, the disciples, and we are getting a faceful from our Lord. His language is strong, threatening, severe, and it is unsettling, and the mood is dark, I would say, in Peter's living room as these uh, men, men gather around. As I dug further, I became more convinced of Jesus' love for us and those men. He knows us and these men very well. He knew that unless we had his perspective on what we're going to look at today, we would fail in our Christian life. Jesus, you will see, if you've read this, is passionate about sin and its consequences in our lives. And as we read these statements and work through there, I want to suggest an alternative to Jesus' hard statement uh, with, with a way to balance this as we understand our Christian life. These are what I call the demands of discipleship the demands of discipleship. And we're going to use this little outline as we go through because the demands of discipleship require four things from us. The first one is love. The second one is purity. The third one is sacrifice. And the fourth one is obedience. And we'll begin to unpack those. The alternative to causing someone to sin is to love them. The alternative to radical surgery where Jesus uses those examples of cutting off your foot, your eye, plucking your eye out, um, is living a life of purity. Our response to, to everyone will be salted by fire is that we need to understand we are called to be a sacrifice for the Lord. And fourth, the way we remain, we remain effective or salty, as Jesus says, or Christ-like is to pursue obedience. The four words, love, purity, sacrifice, and obedience, are words that balance this passage and characterize the Christian life. They are the way we influence others, 
and our culture. Let me stop for a moment. If you look in your text, uh, you'll notice that verses 44 and 46 are missing. They'll go 45, 47, and, and, and then 48. These two verses, though not seen, were identical to verse 48, where Jesus talks about hell. And what, what's believed that, that happened is when, in the earliest manuscripts, they, d- they do not appear. But in the transmission, as they were moved on through um, Christendom in the early years, it's believed that a writer added verse 48 two other times to make the emphasis because Jesus says in 48, he says, for every, uh, and where the, worm, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. So, so it's believed that, that the rabbi or the, not, not a rabbi, but the, the, uh, the manuscript person was, was adding those in there. So they are, Bible publishers acknowledge their presence by their absence. So that's why you'll see two verses missing. It's, it's, just, it's, it's the way of the text in the, in the early ones. So let's begin with verse 42 in Mark 9. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The first demand of discipleship is found here, and it's love. It's the exact opposite of leading someone into sin. Jesus' words are kind of shocking when you think about a millstone and drowning uh, because the results are that uh, if we lead other believers into sin, the consequences are very, very grave. We expect the world to be tempting and to able to draw believers into sin, but another believer... Jesus says in a parallel passage to this in Matthew 18, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And verse 7 says this, woe to the world for temptations to sin. That's expected. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom whom the temptation comes. Note that Jesus uses the word woe, and the concept behind woe is cursed is the one who brings temptation. We need to be very careful as believers as we live our life. Jesus tells us in another passage in Matthew how we should treat other believers. In Matthew 25, 30 to 40, he says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the thirst, then you, then you, or the thirsty, excuse me, I lost my prayer. Yeah, then the righteous will answer him saying, that's the uh, uh, Pharisees, um, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick in the prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it for me. So the righteous there, believers who saw the need and met the need. My point is that we would all agree that Christ lives in us as believers. And if we cause a believer to sin, they have been compromised severely. Because Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit live within us. And if we tempt someone and we cause them to sin, again, consequences are 
very severe. So how can uh, a believer cause another one to stumble, to become entrapped in sin? Let me suggest four ways in this. One is direct temptation, morally or ethically, by engaging them in gossip, lying, cheating, or ostracizing other people, playing favorites. We can do it indirectly by flaunting things or wealth. We can do it by provoking one another to anger or jealousy through the lack of forgiveness when asked or lack of kindness when sought. Setting an example thirdly by flaunting our liberty in Christ, Romans 14. You need to go back to, uh, to there and look at that passage. And lastly, failing to stimulate godliness and righteousness in someone when they come to you for some advice and encouragement. Jesus says if we cause a believer to sin, it would be better to be drowned by a, by a mule stone. And we don't have mule stones in Peoria or anywhere in our country. A mule stone was a device that, was, that weighed several thousand pounds that was pulled by a mule across a larger grinding stone to prepare wheat and other things like that for cooking purposes. I need to tell you, I spent many years in the Coast Guard and as a Navy chaplain and have recovered people who have drowned uh, and I would never want to drown. Um, there's not a more unpleasant way to die, I think, than, than, than drowning. So our application is the opposite of causing someone to sin again is to love them passionately, our children, spouses, and friends. First Corinthians tells us clearly what love is. Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, to name a few. Paul says in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count more, others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The logic is if we lead another to sin, we in effect cause Christ to sin, not truly, but you understand the impact of taking a believer and causing them to compromise their faith because of pressure you place on them. This is especially true, my friends, for you who are young couples and uh, are engaged or hanging out and things are getting close. My concern about immoral sex is very real. And uh, be careful, my friends, as you date and spend time together. Sexual intimacy is, is for married husbands and wives, unmarried women and men. You are responsible for the Lord. Your testimony can be easily compromised through, through that act. For fathers, Paul's encouragement is don't provoke your children to wrath. We need to do things that uplift and stimulate holiness in the lives of our friends and families. And that all comes from a deep, a deep desire to love them as Jesus has loved them. So then the first demand of discipleship uh, is love. The second demand of discipleship counters Jesus' words found in 43, 45, and 47. And in order... Uh, to, to avoid radical surgery, we need to live lives of purity. Jesus' graphic language continues, and his illustration from Israel's history is overwhelming and disturbing. And I need to say here that a good part of this passage, though it's very short, is steeped in Old Testament uh, history, and we'll point out this one and another one. The Scripture says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eyes, eye causes you to sin, tear it out. 
it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The idea of the hand, foot, and eye represent the sum of who we are as a person. The language is violent and strong. Cut off whatever causes you to sin. In some doctrine books, this is called the mortification of sin. It comes from an old King James word that is used in, uh, uh, to, and to, transfer, to translate this word called mortification. The word mortify means to kill or subdue. In a biblical context, mortify is to subdue the body or its needs and desires through self-denial and discipline, i.e. the mortification of the flesh. We get our English words mortuary and mortician from the same Latin word that gives us mortify. Therefore, mortification of sin of the flesh is the killing of sin and the flesh. And the demands of discipleship, love, purity, sacrifice, and obedience help us to live well in that way. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. In Romans 8, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The verb Paul uses there for put to death is in the present tense, which means this is a continuous lifetime action. This idea of putting to death sexual morality, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, is something that you and I will do till we die. And as you mature as a believer, the way these things hit you will be always different. When younger, they come in different ways. As you get older, those, those things, those ideas still present themselves And with maturity, we can address them much quicker and turn them away. The response to this, temptation and sin, must be to flee it as soon as it's recognized. Paul uses the word flee four times in his his works. He tells us to flee the evil desires of youth in 2 Timothy 2, to flee sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, to flee idolatry in 1 Corinthians 10. And and, And in 1 Timothy 6, he tells Timothy this, Flee from the love of money and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many, many witnesses. As Timothy flees the love of money and things that draw his attention from his work in the church, his fleeing turns to pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, gentleness. He pursues fighting the good fight. That's the only good fight. He pursues taking hold of his commitment to Christ, to the eternal life, to which he was called and confessed to. As we run from, then we need to run to. That needs to be our response to sin. Turn our fleeing into pursuing attitudes and behavior that honor God. Build up others and serve as a testimony of God's change in your life. Let me just stop and just talk a little bit in this, pa- in this passage. Paul, uh, Jesus is talking about life, kingdom of God, and uh, in contrast to hell. Radical surgery in our life is required to enter life and the kingdom of God. When Jesus uses the word life in those verses, he's pointing to the kingdom of God every time. 
true life can only be experienced in the kingdom here and when we're with him. And it's better to be lame, Jesus says, than to be thrown into hell. He describes hell as an unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The word for hell here is very interesting. And now we're back to the Old Testament. The word for hell is Gehinnon. Gehinnon means hell every time it appears in scriptures. And sometimes you'll see that in the columns of your Bible. The other word used for hell is the word Hades. But it's used in two different ways. Sometimes Hades is used to, de to, to uh, describe the place where the lost wait for final judgment and hell. The root word for Gehinnon takes us back to a terrible, terrible time in Israel's history. Joshua 15.8 tells us that Gehinnon is located south of Jerusalem. It's a big valley, and it's literally the Valley of Hinnon. In 2 Kings 16 and chapter 21 and 2 Chronicles 28 and 33, we learn about two kings named uh, Ahaz and Manasseh who had been so influenced by the Assyrian kings that they sacrificed babies by burning them alive as an offering to the god of Moloch in the valley of Gehenna. Jeremiah speaks of Israel's disobedience several times in chapter 7, chapter 32. He calls it in chapter 19 the valley of slaughter. So when the disciples hear this, when they hear the word Gehenna, immediately their mind goes back to, oh yeah, Ahaz and Manasseh. Our mind does not go back there. We hear hell and, oh yeah, it's a place where things aren't really good and, and people who are really bad go there. But for the Israelites, for the Jews, they immediately have a context that we don't, we don't have. And it's interesting that sometimes in Scripture, it's called the Valley of the Drum because it is said that drums were beaten to hide the screams of the babies as they were thrown into the fire and sacrificed to the God of Moloch. Horrendous history in Israel's life. A king, a good king named Josiah, shows up soon after these two guys. He stops the practice and Gehinnon becomes the garbage dump for Jerusalem in 2 Kings 23, where food, sewage, and all refuse, refuse burned 24 and 7 for many, many years. The fire never went out, and as Israelites and Jews looked south, they would see the smoke cloud and never forget what happened in that valley brought on by King Ahaz and Manasseh. So that word is powerful to the disciples, probably not as much to us, but with that context and background in the Old Testament, I think it helps give us a perspective of what Jesus is talking about. Jesus speaks of hell 11 of the 12 times it's used in the Gospels. And in this passage, that the, uh, the comment where the worm does not die and fire is not unquenched, another reference to the Old Testament, it's the last verse of the book of Isaiah. And when the disciples heard that, they would immediately know, oh, this is where Isaiah calls down a great judgment upon Israel for their behavior and their actions because he says that's where held where the worm does not die and the fire is unquenched it's important my friends for us to have a good understanding of the Old Testament to really at times understand what Jesus is talking about because we miss so much because we read it quick we're moving through and yeah hell okay but Gehinnon when you go back and read those scriptures you will be amazed and you can just Maybe in your imagination, in your biblical imagination, imagine Ahaz and Manasseh walking up with the priests, the priests of God, chucking babies over the side. And when they land in the fire, they scream as they, as they die. 
Many writers call this section of Scripture the strongest call to discipleship in Scripture. Either we deal radically with sin, or you will end up in the eternal dump where there will be darkness, fire, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus says. And I hate to say it's a black and white issue, but it's pretty black and white. Either you radically change your life, submit to Christ, and move toward him, or you are in danger of never spending your, the rest of your life with him. The remedy for the metaphor of radical amputation is living lives of purity, putting death to sin, death to the sin that so easily entangles us. So the third demand now of discipleship is found in verse 49, where it says, for everyone will be salted by fire. And we're back into the Old Testament again. That's Jesus, not me. <laughs> but, <coughs> and what, what is not surprising to the disciples is they are immediately drawn to Leviticus 1 through 5. So here's some more homework for tonight or this week. In Leviticus 1 to 5, we find the sacrifices of Israel recorded. And there are five. Um, and they are always involve fire because the fire is for purification. We need to understand in the New Testament, as Peter and Jesus unpack this, uh, that every disciple will be called to sacrifice. This is probably one of the most common threads through our Christian life for all of us is that we will be salted with, with fire. As we go back to the Old Testament, we would find out, again, there's five offerings. Four are always animal sacrifices, and one is called the grain offering, which, again, doesn't involve an animal. Uh, sacrifices were always covered with salt because salt was a symbol of God's covenant to the people of Israel. And the salt was applied there because salt was important. Without salt, Israel, salt was as important as water, really, to the Israelites because you couldn't preserve without salt and you need water to drink. And so salt is a very important uh, symbol as well as a, a daily need for them. The grain offering, which the uh, disciples would go back to, is an offering of consecration symbolizing total devotion to the Lord. So what the offer did would bring the grain, different kinds, different ways, the salt would be placed upon it, and as the offering was made, the offerer was saying, Lord, you can have our food because you, we know that you are faithful to, to provide anything we need at any time. So that was the only one that was not requiring an animal, and it was one of consecration of my life as an Israelite to God and promising and knowing that God would provide in spite of anything. Paul's encouragement, you'll, you'll, re, you'll remember from Romans 12, is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which acknowledges our love of God and our desire to be pure. We understand that because we love God, we, cho we choose to flee from sin and pursue purity, offering ourselves as a sacrifice so that we might live the righteous life he has called us to, no matter the cost. We understand from Jesus that everyone who loves him will be salted by fire, which brings purification and perfection which he desires for us. Mark Lane, a New Testament commentator, says this about this, this salt sacrifice metaphor. He says the salt sacrifice metaphor is appropriate to a situation of suffering and trial in which the principle of sacrifice cultivated with respect to the individual members of the body, is now severely tested. The, the disciples must be seasoned with salt like the sacrifice. 
we must be seasoned with salt like the sacrifice. This will take place through fiery trials through which God will purge everything contrary to his will. And you'll remember these encouragements from Peter. He says this, These trials which you face and I face have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's why they come. And Peter adds, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good, continue to persevere, continue to press on. So the third demand of discipleship is the need for and to be ready to sacrifice. The fourth is this, obedience. Verse 50 says, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus continues with this salt metaphor and states the obvious. Salt is good. It is a preservative and a seasoning at both times. From the previous verse, we understood that salt represents dedication and consecration spiritually through the grain offering. As that offerer would bring it to the Lord, he would participate by putting the salt on it, and he and the priest would burn it on the altar before the Lord. But to be effective, salt cannot be diluted. Obedience to the Lord is required to maintain our saltiness or effectiveness. Once we compromise our ability to influence others, once we compromise, our influence to others is lessened considerably. What are the results of obedience? Listen to Jesus as he speaks in Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. Peter adds, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when you speak against, so, so that when they speak against you, evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A strong foundation is one of the things that obedience brings to us. And secondly, our behavior, our obedience, makes an impact in the lives of others that cannot be denied. Shirley and I spent the last couple weeks part of it on vacation, part of working vacation. We were at a camp up in uh, Colorado speaking, and, uh, and I want to share a story about a family who was there with us. Their names are uh, Bill and Beverly Eads. Uh, about seven, six or seven years ago when I was teaching there, I met Bill and Beverly for the first time. They have... I think it's six children, could be seven, I lose count sometimes. And, um, and when I first met Beverly, she was laying, I was teaching a session on marriage, and she was in a, in a beach chair, almost, par, almost prone on the floor. 
and I talked to her and Bill and asked, you know, what, what was going on. And Beverly was, fought, was fighting a host of issues physically, colitis, uh, diverticulitis, um, uh, nu- nutrition issues. And she would come up to the meeting room where we met in the morning. She would spend all day in the meeting room. She, bought, she was a, she's still a big knitter because when I saw her this week, she was still knitting. And that's where she would spend her day. And then Bill would bring her back down to the cabin where they stayed. And they would, again, continue on with, with the night. Over the years, I got to watch Beverly move from a lounge chair to a beach chair, now to a normal chair. Uh, I will tell you today that Beverly now owns a 2001 Corvette 5-speed. <laughs> that's how much she's recovered. <laughs> she's gone from prone in the, in the lounge chair to this lady driving a five-speed Corvette. Pretty cool, dark blue. She showed me pictures of it. And, um, and, and, and what's interesting to me, as I have known Bill and Beverly for all these years, is that they exemplify what, what we're seeing in this scripture. Love unconditionally, not only between themselves and their kids, I know all their kids and spent time with the two youngest ones who are now teenagers, and their commitment to Jesus is unbelievable. They are solid believers. They've married husbands and wives who are believers. Their purity is, uh, from what I can tell from talking to them, is solid, right, right to where it needs to be. They have lived their lives well. And as I see the sacrifice, as I talked to Bill again this week when we were there, or last week when, when, when we were up there, the guy is a mountain of faith. In fact, when, when we would get together and pray, I would always ask Bill to pray. Because the guy can pray. Because he has gone through stuff with his wife that has just perfected him and purified him. And when he prays, and you know some people like this, when they pray, man, you're in the presence of God. I mean, I think God shows up half the time for mine. I'm only kidding. but Because I mean, <laughs> I'm like, Lord, help, I got to go. Anyway, but, <laughs> and he goes, that's typical. But, uh, <laughs> but, but as I watch Bill and Beverly and talk to him again, the lessons he's learned, he was very clear. N- not easy, very uncomfortable, would not want to do him again. But you know what he says all the time? I wouldn't trade him for the world. It has made him the man he is today. And he is a fine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his wife, the same way. I mean, it's just remarkable to see a lady. She's pretty thin anyway, but she was really emaciated six, seven years ago. And then over the years, God has just healed her. She's fought cancer a couple of years ago, and he just presses, presses on. And obedience, wow, what a picture of obedience for me and for those of us uh, who, who, who have known them for the last six, seven, eight, eight years. One of the things Jesus says at the end of this passage uh, as, as he talks to his disciples is um, he, he has said that, oh, he, uh, and, and, and be at peace with one another. Now, when you read that, you're kind of going, okay, be at peace. Uh, what are you talking about? Well, let me close the loop on that. You, you remember as they were coming to Capernaum, they had this big discussion. Who's the greatest? Now, what you have to keep in mind is that Peter, James, and John, in the early part of chapter 9, had been on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. The other nine had been left in town and, and what happens is Peter, James, and John get to see Jesus in his, full, in, in his fullness. So that's pretty cool. I mean, they're on top of the mountain. God shows up. Moses shows up. Elijah shows up. And 
There's Peter, James, and John. <laughs> we number one. Well, maybe, we, maybe, maybe we number threes <laughs> because they were all there. So as they come back off the mountain, um, Jesus uh, encounters his disciples. They're in an argument with the Pharisees because they can't heal this, and this boy. With a, uh, he's demon-possessed. And so Jesus, oh, you men of little faith, and Jesus take, takes care of that. And now they're, Jesus wants to leave that area. So it talks about how Jesus moves them away. And on, the, and on the way to Capernaum, they start arguing who's the greatest. Who's number one? I mean, Peter was pretty something else. And, and you can imagine after he sees Jesus transfigured, <laughs> I'm feeling better. Yep. Pick me. I'll be number one. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, sons of thunder, we got some real personalities clashing in this. And Jesus interrupts that and says, let me tell you who the greatest is. Very last and servant of all. Okay. And so when Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about? They go, oh, nothing, Lord. <laughs> nothing. And Jesus knows what's cooking in between those guys. <laughs> and he can, I mean, he, again, he's the Lord. Come on, give us a break. I mean, but, but so he addresses that, talks to, uh, uh, about Whoever is not against us is for us. And then he goes into this really tough section of Scripture about what it takes to be a believer. Love, purity, sacrifice, and obedience. And what does Jesus say? The key characteristic, I think, of obedience is peace. So what he's saying to these guys is, hey, cut the pride. Your self-serving competitive natures do not exemplify the kingdom values that I have come to bring and that you have heard many times by now. Stop elevating yourself above the other. Why? Because you, be, you could be causing one of your other brothers to, to sin. Can you imagine James, Peter, and John coming off the mountain talking to the other nine and going, <laughs> guess what we saw? You weren't there. <laughs> we are the inner circle, you know, <laughs> the three of us, and you guys are the outer circle. And was that happening? I would not be surprised. Perhaps some of that very subtly underneath the surface. So Jesus says, stop elevating yourself above another because you could be causing someone else to sin. Jesus says, live at peace. Church, we need to live at peace. We need to be very careful how we treat each other, how we care for one another. We need to put ourselves away, as Paul would say. We need to put off the old man, put on the new man so that we can live well. Obedience strengthens our effectiveness as a preservative, I would say, within our families, within the relationships we have, and the seasoning, that we get to interact with other people different ways. We get to share our faith. We get to share our lives. And we get to season them as we live our lives. Obedience requires the discipline of putting off the old man. And putting on the new man, which leads to a life of purity. I define obedient love this way. Obedient love is doing what is right by another at any given time or place in spite of the way you feel. Okay, so obedient love is doing what is right by another at any given time or place in spite of the way you feel. And I say this to people when I counsel them marriage, uh, for marriage counseling and others. I really don't care how you feel. <laughs> I do, but I don't. It's one of those dichotomies in life. What I care is, is that you do the right thing 
because I'm convinced as soon as we step out and do the right thing, the Holy Spirit comes up behind us and goes, exactly what I wanted you to do. <laughs> do you feel a little better now? Yeah, I do feel better. Because why? I was obedient. I didn't let my emotions and circumstances control me and drive me away from a godly response. So again, obedience is key. Obedience also is sacrifice for another. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this than he laid down his life for another. I spent years in the military, as many of you know, and was in Iraq and uh, had about 15 or 16 Marines killed in my unit when we were there. And they gave the ultimate sacrifice, there's no doubt. When time came to fight, they were in the front, they took the shot and they died. But I would dare say that this concept, greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for another, in relationships here is very tough to do. And I would say, and my Marines, I've talked to them about this, I would say it is harder to lay down your life daily for a lifetime than it is one time in the battlefield. Now, again, I buried a lot of those Marines, so I've got the, I got the contrast. Very big sacrifice, no doubt. In the, in the front, take the shot, all those things. But living a life of daily sacrifice for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years is very, very difficult to do. But it's one that Jesus calls us to do. Peter sums up our Christian life this way. He says, what kind of people ought you to be? Simply, Peter says, you ought to live holy and godly lives. You ought to live holy and godly lives. That's what you and I are called to do. The demands of discipleship are a responsibility. I like to use the word duty. Some of my friends get upset at me. Oh, it's a duty. Yeah, maybe that's a you know, things from the military. I don't know, but I think we have a duty because of what Christ has done for us to live these demands of discipleship in a responsible fashion. I really think that we don't have a choice, but we still exercise our free will. There's no doubt about it. Well, Lord, you want me to do this? I'm not going to do that. Forget it. I'm going to just blow it off and not follow through. But again, I think the, the, they are a responsibility that we as believers must pursue. As we consider what Christ has done for us, the change in our life, the salvation, the freedom, the gifts that he has given us, we have no choice. We have a duty to pursue the demands of discipleship, of love, purity, sacrifice, and obedience. A couple of things as I close. We have not been left without assistance, and I think you all know that, and I'm going to remind you of some of them. Timothy says this, uh, I'm sorry, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Okay, God did not give us a spirit of timidity. The word is cowardice, but a spirit of power, and that word is dunamis. And I must just say here right now, be careful that, that you don't go dunamis as dynamite because the Greeks had no idea what dynamite was. So you can't compare the two. It's, people go boom, and they go, we don't know boom. <laughs> we just know power, but we don't know a dynamite type thing. But a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. There it is. Timothy? God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And then Paul reminds us that since we live by the Spirit in Galatians 5, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We, we do not live apart from the Holy Spirit's movement and presence in our lives, so we need to keep in step with what He 
has said to us as he illuminates the scripture to us as we read and study and grow to know Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit better. Provision through Christ, through the Father and the Holy Spirit has been made for us to live the the demands of discipleship well. It is up to us to walk well within that provision. That's our part of this process. Jesus has been very clear. The language is strong and it's hard and it's focused. You need to do these things because as believers, we have no choice. We need to, again, be loving, uh, live lives of purity. We need to be people who are willing to sacrifice our very lives for others and be obedient as we run and walk the Christian life. Well, let me pray for us and the band will come back and we'll continue on with our service. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Father, for what it means to us. Father, for the change that has brought about in us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be obedient, that we would be loving, we would live pure lives, and we would sacrifice our needs for others regularly so that people can see the power of God living in our lives. Thank you, Father, for friends, for those who've come to gather this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.